Hello again, and welcome to the fifth episode of The Grand Scheme of Things. I'm your tour guide, Bill McKim, and in this episode, I'm going to return to talk about free will. In the fourth episode, I took up all my time discussing the history and philosophy behind free will, but today I'll be discussing some hard data. Just a reminder before we get started, if you have any questions about what I say, you can email email me at tgst at bell.net. That's tgst as in the grand scheme of things at bell.net. Just like it sounds. I can direct you to my sources and may even be able to send you a transcript. If you don't want to do that, just please make use of Wikipedia, as I do. In this episode, I want to go over the data available that relates to whether free will exists. As I explained in the first episode, uh, I technically it's not possible to devise a crucial test for the existence of free will because free will, by definition, is supernatural. That is to say, it is not controlled by the laws of nature, and we cannot make any predictions about it. So, from a scientific point of view, that makes it impossible to prove or disprove, just like the existence of fairies, ghosts, and maybe even God. Just think back to the first episode when I talked about James Usher, the Archbishop of Armagh, an Anglican primate of all Ireland who famously claimed that the universe was created on the evening preceding the 23rd of October in the year 4004 BC. That should be BCE, I guess. Now, that was a testable theory. It could be falsified simply by finding anything on Earth that was older than about 6,000 years. And that was done, and the theory is wrong. End of story. But is there any observation or experiment that we can point to that will tell us whether choice, the choices made by humans could have been otherwise? Is there any scientific way to test for freedom? If there is, I can't think of one. Unfortunately, to everyone's regret, it's just not possible to go back in time and see if a decision could have been made otherwise under exactly the same circumstances. So there's no way to prove free will does not exist. But remember that this is also true, that there is no way to prove that free will does exist either. So, why do we believe in it? Well, that's because everyone experiences it. It is evident every time we make a decision. Every time we decide when to get up in the morning or decide what we will wear or have for breakfast, everyone talks and thinks as though free will were real. Even all those clever folks that call themselves theoretical physicists and believe in determinism and the block universe think, talk, and act in their daily lives as though they had free will. It seems as though the burden of proof has fallen to the no-free-will side. Okay, so what can science do? Well, when you think about it, there's a lot more to the will than whether it is free or not. Let's look at the process more carefully. Let's return to that little mental exercise that I had you do in the last episode. Remember, I asked you hold a, to hold a pencil or a small object in your hand while I counted to three. You were supposed to decide whether or not to drop it before I finished counting. That is, you had to make a decision. 
The point of the exercise was not whether you dropped the pencil or not. The point was that you had to exercise your will and decide. I suspect very few of you actually held the pencil and made the decision, but that doesn't matter either. It was a thought experiment. While you were sitting there holding the pencil, there was stuff going on in your brain and your body. Your muscles in your hands were retracted enough so that the pencil was held in place. These muscles were under the control of nerve cells located in the motor cortex of your brain. They were firing at a rate just fast enough to produce enough tension on the muscles. These nerves were being controlled by feedback from the muscles in your fingers and finger joints and by stimulation from other nerves in the supplementary motor cortex, which were being stimulated by a vast network of nerves elsewhere in your brain. Now, when I started counting, something somewhere started considering whether you would let go or not. Perhaps you thought, no, I won't let go because that guy's just trying to trick me. And he may tell me I have some undesirable contrary personality trait if I do. Or maybe you were thinking that your back hurts and you don't want to have to bend over and pick that pencil up. Well, while you were listening to me counting to three, something somewhere was deliberating. But what was deliberating and where? There was something making a decision. Maybe you would call it your mind, your soul, yourself, your ego. But it was a process of which you were conscious. You were aware that a choice had to be made. And you made it. You imposed your will on your fingers and the pencil. So, think in that case that we can say that your will arises from some conscious decision-making process. Now, we don't really know what consciousness is or where it arises, but that does not seem to matter. Your decision appears as though it arises from consciousness. Thus, if your behavior arises from an unconscious source, it would not have been caused by your will. So now we have something we can work with, something from which we can generate testable hypotheses. For example, we can observe whether a person can believe that they are conscious and contr consciously controlling behavior when we know in reality they do not have control of it. Or we can look and see if people ever do things that normally are created by conscious will but be totally unaware that they are doing them. Can it be possible that the causal relationship between the conscious will and the action is an illusion? Here's a brief review of what we know about the link between conscious will and action. Now, none of these observations can test for the freedom of the will, but they do provide useful information about the role of consciousness in the control of behavior. It turns out that there's a lot of good evidence on, that on many occasions the sensation that our will causes our actions is, in fact, an illusion. In a fascinating book published in 2002 called The Illusion of Conscious Will, Daniel Winger, the University of Virginia, has provided an impressive review of the data that supports the conclusion that the impression that conscious will causes action is an illusion. He discusses relevant phenomena that shows sometimes we have the experience that we are causing something to happen when indeed we have not, 
and conversely, that we also occasionally perform actions that are normally considered voluntary, but are unaware that we have done so. One incidence is like you're doing things, but not thinking that you have. To illustrate this, we need to go no further than the standard Ouija board. Most people have played the Ouija board game where two people place their hands, or their fingertips rather, on a either side of a small pointer which rests on a board that contains numbers and letters of the alphabet. The pointer soon starts moving, and each participant is convinced that he or she is not moving it. In the 19th and early 20th centuries, when spiritualism was popular, the Ouija board and several similar phenomena such as table turning were widely practiced. The movement of these objects was imparted to them by the participants, but each felt, or each was left with the impression, that something else was moving it, in this case, a spirit from the other side. Another example is divining, using a pendulum or a rod. A person walks through a field suspending a pendulum on a string. At some point, the pendulum starts to rotate wildly, presumably indicating the location of an underground spring or some lost article. It has been shown that both the rotation of the pendulum and the dipping of the divining rod are caused by the person holding them. The diviner has no impression that he or she has actually caused the rotation uh, and, in fact, often attempts to stop it, but cannot. Unless he or she is a charlatan, the diviner is completely unaware that they have done this and attributes the action to an outside force, the pull of underground water, perhaps. Another interesting uh, demonstration of this idea is something called facilitated communication. Anything that brings a ray of hope into the lives of the families of severely impaired people is generally to be desired. This was the case with something called facilitated communication, which was developed to aid people with severe communication disorders, such as those with autism or cerebral palsy, help them communicate. In facilitated communication, a facilitator supports the hand or arm of the impaired individual over a letter board, something like that used for the Ouija board, or a typewriter or computer keyboard. The facilitator then helps to support the typing or pointing finger, but is, but is not to direct or influence the pointing or the typing in any way. It was discovered that when people who previously had been unable to use language were assisted in this way, they quite suddenly started to produce complete sentences by pointing at letters or striking keys. This was hailed as a major breakthrough. These patients, many of whom have never spoken a word in their lives, were now able to tell their stories and to talk with loved ones, even write poetry. What could be more exciting? Unfortunately, it turned out that after extensive research, it was not the patients who were actually doing the communicating, it was the facilitator. Among other things, it had been demonstrated that patients are unable to answer questions unless the facilitator knows the answer. What is remarkable about facilitated communication is that every facilitator was convinced that they were not directing the patient in any way, but clearly they were but they were not aware of it at all. 
they were performing a very complex voluntary act, but were attributing every movement to someone else. Now, there are also demonstrations where we are not doing something, but we think that we have. It's much more difficult to create this sort of situation experimentally, but sometimes it happens that we think that we are making something happen, but we are not. I'm reminded of the story of a chap in London during the Second World War. At the time, it was being bombed by V-2 rockets. These rockets fell when their fuel ran out, and so they made no noise as they approached and struck without warning. Now, this chap was taking a bath, and at just the instant, instant that he pulled the plug, a V-2 rocket struck his neighborhood, destroying his house. He survived, but until it was explained to him what happened, he believed that he had caused the explosion by pulling the plug. Another example is from Winger's book, a bit more mundane perhaps, of an experience that most of us have had. This is a direct quote from the, from the book, and it says, uh, from Winger, I was shopping in a toy store one Saturday, when my kids were taking a complete inventory of the stock, I eased up to a video game display and started fiddling with the joystick. A little monkey on the screen was eagerly hopping over barrels as they rolled towards him, and I got quite involved in moving him along and making him hop until the phrase, start game, popped into view. I was under the distinct impression that I had started some time ago, but in fact, I had been playing during the pre-game demo. Now, that's a, the game is a little bit out of date. Um, most millennials won't have the slightest idea what game we're referring to here. That was back in 1995. Winger, Winger had been moving the joystick at the same time as the game demo made the monkey jump. He therefore believed that he had made it jump, even though he had not. The point is that if you perform an action, and every time you do, something happens, it's easy to think you have caused it to happen. Here are a couple of examples of how consciousness responds when the brain is caused to make the body do something by an external force. In 1992, an experiment by Brazil Nito and his colleagues exposed experimental subjects to intense magnetic stimulation of the motor area of the cortex of the brain. He randomly exposed either the right or the left side of the brain to this magnetic stimulation, just as his subjects were to choose whether to lift a left or right finger. Subjects showed a strong tendency to move the finger on the side opposite to the side their brain was being stimulated. This showed that the magnetic stimulation influenced their choice of which finger to move. That w what was interesting about this experiment was that his subjects appeared to be completely unaware of the influence of the magnetic field and claimed that they were making the decision about which finger to move. In another study along these lines, Jose Delgado, a Spanish neurosurgeon, placed electrodes directly on the exposed motor cortex of patients undergoing brain surgery. Not surprisingly, when he placed the electrodes on specific areas of the motor cortex, his patients, who were fully conscious during the operation, would move. For example, in one patient, a certain stimulation caused him to move his head from side to side, as though he were looking for something. What was interesting was that he seemed to be unaware 
that the stimulation had caused the movement and appeared to feel as though he had resp been responsible for the action. When he was asked what he was doing, he could come up with a good explanation, such as, I was looking for my slippers, or I heard a noise. These examples demonstrate that we are sometimes unable to tell the difference between actions we cause and the actions caused by an external influence, such as magnetic fields or electrical stimulation. They also demonstrate that not only do we take credit for externally caused actions, but we try to explain the reasons for taking the action. This is a process called confabulation. It seems that we are compelled to come up with reasonable explanations even when we do not know why we are doing something. I remember when my children were very small and getting into all sorts of mischief, as most children do. I remember once when they would do something really troubling, um, I would demand to know why they had done that and was sometimes quite frustrated when they would answer, I don't know, Daddy. I should have realized that they were too young to confabulate and were telling me the exact truth. They didn't know. Apparent causation. How is it that the causal link between conscious will and bodily action can be an illusion? Well, there's a body of research into what's called apparent causation. We look at a series of external events and attribute causes to what is happening. For example, think of a couple of balls on a pool table. One rolls along and hits another, which then moves off on its own. Under what circumstances do we see the movement of the first ball as causing the movement of the second ball? Well, we now know that there are three conditions that need to be filled to make this happen. They are priority, consistency, and exclusivity. Priority means that the first ball must be moving and hit the second ball before the second ball moves. That is to say, the order of things is important. If ball one did not hit ball two or was not moving and ball two moved, then we would not say that ball one caused ball two to move. Now, consistency is important. Ball number two must move in the expected direction. If ball two moves backwards, in the direction that ball one came from, we will not think that ball one caused ball two to move. And finally, exclusivity. Ball one must be the only ball that strikes ball two before we conclude that it was ball one that caused ball two to move. So for any series of events A and B, our minds will believe that A causes B if there is priority, consistency, and exclusivity. We apply this rule to events going on outside our body, but it is also true that we apply the same rule to events going on inside one's body. Let's go back to the thought experiment with the pencil. The mind sees a series of events. Event A is, I'm thinking that I will drop the pencil. Event B is the pencil drops. Between A and B there is priority, consistency, and exclusivity. So it is not surprising that the conscious mind concludes that I have caused the pencil to drop. In an extensive review of the literature in 1995, Wenger and Wheatley showed that this is the case when our consciousness applies the same standards 
to the attribution of causation to itself as it does to the physical world, and that it can easily be misled into believing that it caused things to happen when it did not, as in the case of the monkey jumping in the video game, and likewise, that it can be misled into believing that it did not cause things when in fact it did, in this case the Ouija board. This does not prove that free will does not exist, but it does demonstrate that mental causality and the perception of control can sometimes be an illusion. Neurophysiological Studies I want to begin this section by going over one of the most famous or infamous studies in this area of psychology. It was published in 1985 by Benjamin Libet of the University of California at Davis. He was studying something called the readiness potential. Now, if you put EEG, electroencephalograph, that is, electrodes on a person's scalp, you can detect a slow negative shift in electrical potential over the supplementary motor area of the cortex, about half a second before the person performs an intentionally an intentional or voluntary motor act such as moving a finger. Liebet instructed his subjects to move a finger at a time chosen by them and found that this readiness potential occurred about half a second before his subjects moved their finger. Now this might not be too surprising because the readiness potential might simply be an indication that the person had just decided to move their finger. But Libet was taking other measurements at the same time. He had his subjects look at the sweep hand of a clock and report when they experienced the awareness that they intended to move their finger. Now you might expect, based on subjective introspection, that the conscious mind decided when to move the finger and sent a message to the supplementary motor cortex to get ready to move the finger, and this showed up in the EEG is the readiness potential. But what Liebet found surprised everyone. The decision to move happened about 0.2 seconds before the moving of the finger and 0.3 seconds after the readiness potential, not before. In other words, brain events associated with moving the finger occurred 0.3 seconds before the person said that they decided to move the finger. It was as though the brain decided to move the finger and then let the consciousness of the person know what it was going to do about two seconds or 0.2 seconds later. Now, if you believe the mind or consciousness controls the brain, this is the wrong way around. But if you believe that consciousness arising from, arises from or emerges from the brain activity, this makes perfect sense. As you might imagine, this was a very controversial finding. Critics suggested that all sorts of potential flaws in the experiment. But the Liebet experiment has been replicated many times in many different labs, and the findings are now widely accepted, although you might expect interpretations very widely. In addition, the activity he chose to use was not when to push the button like Libet used, but the experimental subject was to choose between either pushing a button under the right 
index finger or under the left index finger. The decision the subject had to make was not when to push a button, but which button to push. The fMRI detects the location of changes in the brain much more accurately than the EEG that Libet used, but it is slower to respond than the EEG. You see a result after a delay of seconds rather than milliseconds, but you know very accurately where it happens in the brain. Not only did the Soon experiment replicate Libet's finding, but it was able to extend and elaborate the decision-making process to other parts of the brain. Soon was able to demonstrate that activity in the primary and secondary motor, motor cortex preceded the subjective decision by up to 10 full seconds, rather than the few milliseconds or a few hundred milliseconds as Leavitt had been able to find using the EEG. Furthermore, Soon used computer analysis of activities in other parts of the brain to see if the activity anywhere else in the brain could predict whether the right or the left button would be pressed, and found that distinct predictive patterns of neural activity were seen in two other parts of the brain. The first was the frontopolar cortex, known as Broadman's 10, which showed a predictive pattern of activity up to seven full seconds before the conscious decision was made. And the second was an area in the parietal cortex. From the timing of this activity, it appears that the decision about which button to push was made in the frontopolar cortex and is stored in the parietal cortex till it is delivered to the primary and the secondary motor cortex for execution. Well, the data are pretty convincing. It's clear that the brain knows not only what you will do, but when you will do it up to 10 seconds before your conscious mind is aware of it. Assuming that this is your conscious, that it is your conscious mind that has free will, you would think that it would be the first to know what you are about to do. While these experiments do not prove there is no free will, they demonstrate that conscious will, free or otherwise, does not operate at all in the way that it seems from the inside. Well, where does this leave us in the free will debate? Clearly, these findings cast serious doubt on the image we all have in our heads of our conscious mind sitting somewhere behind our eyes, monitoring everything that's going on in and around us, and making rational decisions and implementing those decisions by pulling levers that control what we do. Perhaps we should replace that image with another one, one that's suggested by a number of philosophers, that consciousness is merely an epiphenomenon, like the whistle on a train. It, caused, it is caused by the train, but has no influence on the operation of the train, or perhaps it might be like a pattern of lights on the ceiling of a swimming pool, created by the water, but not able to have any effect on it. Consciousness, just perhaps, is merely a powerless observer of what's going on in our brains, and tricked by a powerful illusion into the belief that it has some control over it. Well, I would say that we just don't know enough to embrace either of these models. 
Certainly the traditional model of the all-powerful consciousness in control of everything cannot be universally true. Perhaps the Libet Soon findings only apply to a limited aspect of the behavior and are restricted, say, to simple finger movements. But we have no way of knowing. While these studies demonstrate that some sort of control of behavior by the conscious mind is just an illusion, it does not follow that all conscious control is an illusion. But it certainly could be. In any case, there's nothing new in this. Remember Sigmund Freud and his extensive speculations about the id and the ego and the superego and the subconscious mind. Most of Freudian speculation is not considered to be scientific because his theories have never generated a falsifiable hypothesis, as Karl Popper pointed out many years ago. In spite of this shortcoming, I believe that Freud had at least two valuable insights. The first is that things that happen to us in our early childhood can have a great influence on our later grown-up lives, and more on this one later, and that we often have no idea why we do things that we do, although we certainly can make up explanations that sound reasonable. At the very least, we know that we do not have conscious control of all our behavior. We will not know how much, if any, until more research has been done. We also know that consciousness does not work the way that we feel or way ex that we experience that it does. In the meantime, it could be useful to consider the implications of what this means. My first response when it dawned on me was, what the hell, why am I trying so hard to do what I do and make the right decision when every decision I make has already been made by the laws of nature and is already recorded in the block universe and I can't change anything anyway? Well, I don't think it's possible to adopt that point of view. The illusion and the feeling of control is just too pervasive and compelling to let us stop moving, thinking, eating, loving, caring, dreaming, singing, and being human. Remember the Epicureans. Epicurus figured that he, it would be more enjoyable if we adopted the atomist philosophy. We would not worry at all about events that we had no control over and could just, and could just get on with making the most of every now. There are some additional benefits to losing some of our free will, uh, which can help us better understand our own behavior and that of others. Think about it. There is so much other people do that makes no sense to us. It makes no sense because we are assuming that their behavior is motivated by conscious schemes, plots, and desires, and are part of some conscious plan, i.e., that people are capable of making decisions and have the freedom to behave in any number of different ways when in fact they have not. It is also beneficial to be aware that people do not understand what they do or why they do it and often uh, reduce complexity to artificial simplicity by confabulation. Before I turn this episode over to the banjo player, there's one more thing I thought you should know about. In an earlier episode, I told you about Newton's version of time, which said that there is only one time that was universal throughout the universe and that the future could be anything depending upon what happens in the now. 
But Einstein's theory of relativity changed that. Time became a solid block in which the future was fixed and could not be changed. I said that most theoretical physicists believed in Einstein. Turns out, not all of them do. I have been reading a book by Lee Smolin, a theoretical physicist at the Perimeter Institute in Waterloo, Canada. Smolin has been working with Carlo Rovelli and others to produce a new version of string theory that involves quantum gravity. His book is called Time Reborn, and he makes the case that we should bring back good old Newtonian conception of time. Now, I always struggle with these books written by physicists for the intelligent layperson, and I don't have time to elaborate, but I urge you to read it. It's called Time Reborn by Lee Smolin. Okay, Banjo Guy, over to you. Take it away. <laughs> 